0: It was me. Yeah, I didn't have a microphone on me. Yeah. (laughs) All right, let's get get that started again. Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church. Let's begin today by praying. Heavenly Father, we're in awe of you. We're in awe of your love for us. We're in awe of the fact that You sent Your Son, God the Son, God in the flesh, to die for us. And we are also in awe of Your raising Him from the dead with the greatest power ever exhibited. And we know, Father, that in Your awesome understanding of our inabilities, You made salvation straightforward and simple, that we would hear good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we would believe it and have eternal life. Father, today... We would ask also that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct everything that's going on today, that he would encourage us and empower us to live according to your word. And we also ask, Father, for giving us a kinder, softer heart for one another, as many people as everybody has their own private burdens, that we would be there to encourage and lift up one another. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning again, everybody. Morning. Let me begin with a couple of announcements today. Once again, our missionary of the month is Pastor Kingsley Emaniki. And he's got trips planned for 2020. Please keep that in prayer. He uh, is going to Nigeria, Zambia, and this place called South Florida. I've got to look that up on a map. <laughs> and again, there's a, they're both, of course, his trips abroad are both in Africa, where he hails from. He's come from Nigeria originally. He's going to go there for a while. He's going to go south to Zambia. And you can see both those on the map. So please keep him in prayer, his family in prayer, and also his trips in prayer, that they'd be fruitful and that he'd be safe. Well, um, many of you know, but not all of you, that Tom Merchberger, who was I'll say has been a faithful member of the congregation for a long time. You haven't seen him. Well, because he has Parkinson's disease, and uh, he finally died from that. And we're going to have a memorial service for him next Saturday at 2 o'clock. Okay, Tom Merschberger. This is actually at his daughter Megan's wedding, which um, I officiated at. So it's special to me um, as well. Again, memorial service for Tom is this Saturday, January 25th at 2 p.m. I encourage all of you to attend if you're able to. Um, also, in lieu of flowers, you can make a donation in Tom's name if you wish to the Michael J. Fox Parkinson's Foundation. Okay. Also, please keep our youth group in prayer, our youth ministry in prayer. We plan to have our youth group meet every Wednesday at 6.30, and then once a month we're going to have one of those, a movie night on a Friday evening. So please keep all of that in prayer. Uh, we have Bibles in the back. If anybody needs one, just raise your hand. and we'll get, If you forgot it or whatever, we always have them available. So they're in the back. If you come in and go in the back before service, of course, you can pick one up at that time as well if you need one. The title of today's message is The Edification of the Church, The Building Up of the Church, The Body of Christ. And we're in 1 Corinthians 14 and we're starting in verse 10 today. And the fact is that this is, of course, as usual, where our title comes from. You've probably been seeing that pattern for a while. In any event, let's start today in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 10. There are, perhaps, a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If, then, I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Well, we picked things up today here in chapter 14 with verses 10 to 15. Let me briefly review where we've been. First of all, realize that chapter 14 as a whole is primarily about this gift of tongues, which, of course, he saw in verse 13, will cease. And the will cease was meant that back in the first century, he's telling them that tongues will cease. But chapter 14 is primarily about the limitations of the gift of tongues in that period of time. I keep saying that because we will be seeing very soon exactly when tongues ceased. Okay, just hold on a little bit more for that. I know a lot of you want to, want to know that. I don't blame you. So also in chapter 14, we've seen Paul make his criteria plain for determining which gift was superior. He does say that some gifts are superior to others. And remember, it's the answer to this question, which gift? does a better job of building up or edifying the church, a gift that is exercised so that others may benefit, so that it, it, it makes everybody be built up together in love. Those gifts are, more, are superior to gifts that don't do that. So we saw that last week, too. We saw also that in chapter let me map out chapter 14 again, just because there's a lot of words here, and we want to make sure you get it. Verses 1 to 5, which we were in last week, Paul gives direct teaching that contrasts the gift of tongues with the gift of prophecy. We'll see an example of that. That's verses 1 to 5. Okay, We saw that last week. We also dipped into this next section. Paul teaches by way of analogy. After he teaches directly, he then uses analogies, sort of pictures, so that you can understand better and you have a picture in your head. That's verses 6 to 12. Remember we saw... He has three analogies that he's going to use. He he compares uninterpreted tongues. That's his issue. Uninterpreted tongues in the service. That's his issue at the time, anyway. He uses three analogies for it. The first one is musical instruments. The second one is is a bugle preparing soldiers for battle. And the third one is two people trying to carry on a conversation, but who don't speak each other's language. Now, after the analogies, we're going to get to that because you can see that that, well, you can't see it, but see, that's that's verses 6 to 12. We did verses 6 to 9 last week. We looked at two of them. We looked at the musical instruments. We looked at the bugle. We're going to pick things up today with people who don't understand each other's language. Okay. The third one is, of course, that's the third one. Understanding that, wait a minute, I don't know what you're saying. (laughs) He's going to compare tongues to that. All right. Now, after he's done with that in verse 12, he then goes and applies this teaching on tongues and prophecy to the assembly. He says, now, I've taught you about it. I've given you analogies about it. Let me now put it into the local assembly so you can see how it's supposed to function. That's verses 13 to 25. We're going to get started in that today. This is where we will pick things up. And then the last thing he does in the last part of chapter 14 is then he then gives specific instructions. Here's how I want you to conduct the worship service. He focuses on tongue speakers. Here's how you should be doing, how you should be behaving, using your gift in the worship service. And then he says to prophets, here's how you should operate. And as we will see, it all is designed to build up the church, keep order, and so that everyone may be be edified. If everyone is speaking in tongues, Who who, who understands anything? It's just a cacophony. Same thing with prophets. If five prophets are getting up at the same time and they're all trying to vie for the attention of the body, well, that's a mess. That's a disaster. So he's going to show the orderly way and how these gifts should function in the local assembly with instructions. Here's how you should do that. Now, I want to keep emphasizing that Paul's critique of the gift of tongues here is in the context of the church gathering together for worship. He's saying, when you gather together for worship, you should be looking at the other people and figuring out how you can edify and build them up with your gifts, whatever it might be. Now again, tongues have ceased, but that principle goes on that we should always be operating in the church and the assembly with one another in a way that we build up one another. Okay. And again, he has a... Therefore, his problem with tongues is that if it's not interpreted in public worship, somebody stands up and and it's a bunch of... language. By the way... This gift of tongues, okay, is about speech that even the speaker can't understand. That's why he needs an interpreter. And nobody in the congregation can understand what's being said either. Now, I say that because next week, I think we'll get to the place where we're going to contrast the gift of tongues here in chapter 14 with the gift of tongues in Acts 2. And by way of introduction, here in chapter 14, we have speech that no one understands. In Acts chapter 2, we have speech that's miraculous because everybody understands it, even though they speak different languages. So that's different. We'll, get, we'll see more of that. Again, he has no problem with tongues by itself, after all. He's going to say, uh, in a few verses actually, that he speaks in tongues more than anyone in the congregation. So the problem with tongues... Oops, did I say that already? Again, the problem with tongues is that if it's uninterpreted in public worship, no one can understand what the tongues speakers are saying. One who spoke in tongues edified himself with no interpreter. He's having a great time with the Spirit. He's praying, and that's, that's building him up, and that's fine. Just like our private prayer. But when we're doing it in the worship service, we should behave differently. Can you imagine if we had a, on, the, on the prayer service on Thursday evening... If everybody prayed exactly the way they prayed in private with the Lord, well, there'd be a lot of things the rest of us wouldn't really get. You know, I'm so thankful that you dealt with this. And, you know, that's not the same. In the public prayer service, we are again to build up one another, to pray for each other. In private prayer, I'm sure all of us at times pray for ourselves, work things out with the Lord. And that's a private thing. But when we gather together for public worship, again, it ought to be the building up and edifying one another. Somebody submits a prayer request, and they hear us praying for it, and that builds them up. That gives them more uh, confidence, especially when prayer is answered. When we're in public prayer, everybody hears it, and then we recognize down the road when it's answered. And it's a wonderful thing to see that. So that's, that's another example of that. I say that because a lot of people, it's media at times, say, well, gosh, you know, if tongues have ceased, why do I bother with looking at what Paul says? And the answer is simple. While that particular gift has ceased... The principles relating to all the gifts, especially tongues, because that's a private gift primarily, ought to be done according to building up the church. So if they're uninterpreted, that's not going to happen. Nobody's going to understand what he's saying. So prophecy is the greater gift. That's that's how he concludes this. Why? Because prophecy speaks to the whole congregation in their own language. Words that come from the Lord, that everybody understands. That builds up everybody. It does a much better job at edifying the church, edifying one another. All right, so we saw last week, and we'll finish this today, that he then moves to analogies. So so the saints can grasp his main point. He says, listen, I'm wanting you to understand the difference between sounds that have meaning. See, I'm speaking the English language now. It's really just Sounds. But it has meaning because we share that language. We understand what the meaning behind that is. If I were to give you a Bible that was written in uh, Haitian Creole, all right, that wouldn't, you wouldn't get as much out of that. right? That's just the way it is. We have different languages, but we should, when we communicate, we ought to have the same language so people understand. All right. That's why I used to feel like, let's you know, there, be a Brazilian church, and I was thinking, why do they just want to get together with one another? Of course, the answer is, is because I don't happen to speak Portuguese, and most of the other churches don't. So they've got to go to a place where they do speak Portuguese. Make sense? Okay. So again, these three analogies drive home the difference between sounds with meaning and sounds that are unintelligible. And I hope you can see that that plugs into sounds with meaning, prophecy. Today it would be preaching, teaching. All right. Sounds that are unintelligible. That's, of course, referring to tongues. Okay. Now, you can turn now to 1 Corinthians 14, 7. You should be close to that. Just back up a little bit. We covered the first two analogies uh, last Sunday, and we're going to briefly review those again because we're going to do the third one, and I want you to see all three. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute? or on the harp. I mentioned this last week, that if you, had a, if you had somebody, like you'd have a six-year-old kid trying to play the trumpet, you've ever experienced that, or even a ten-year-old, but they starting. It's just a bunch of noise. Why? Because they're just starting to figure out how their mouthpiece works. They're certainly not playing anything that's intelligible. He's right? comparing tongues to that. All right. So, musical instruments that never produce melody or harmony are useless. They're done nothing but harsh Random sounds, noise, they don't signify anything. Verse 8, they're the musical instruments. I have a particular affinity for that one. I used to play it. All right, the next one, you can then look at verse 8 again. For if the bugle, this is in a war situation, produces an indistinct sound. What? what did the bugle just play? I have no idea. Are we supposed to retreat? Are we supposed to do a left flank? Are we supposed to do a direct attack? I have no idea. Because when he played that bugle, he didn't play it, so I could hear the commands I'm expecting. Again, he's, he's comparing that to tongues. All right, there's a, there's a picture of somebody playing taps at the end of the day. I have a particular affinity for this picture, too, because it's the West Point Band. Those of you who don't know, my son's a, a plebe over there. All right, so he's, he's comparing uninterpreted tongues with the military bugle that produces unrecognizable calls. You know? Like like, let's say you're out playing, and your mom says, rah, rah, rah. "You're like what?" She's telling me, to "Can I play for another hour?" Am I in trouble? Is dinner ready? I have no idea. You know, that's tongues if it's not interpreted. All that would do in a battle situation is cause great confusion in the army. Some might guess charge. Some might guess retreat. Some might guess I'm going on the left flank, and then the whole the whole army's exposed. So the 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 distinctive sound of a bugle prepares one for battle. The distinctive sounds with meaning prepares us for the battle that we have, which is against not flesh and blood, but the spiritual powers of wickedness in the heavenly places. The word of God is more powerful than that. The gospel is more powerful than that. that, But that has to be heard with meaning in order for us to be prepared. So again, in the same way that a bugle that produces unrecognizable calls... Causes great confusion during the battle. In the same way, unless a person utters with his tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? By the way, speech that is clear also has to do with good pronunciation and and, and sufficient volume. You know, there's people, mostly kids, it kills me. They want to say something, but they're kind of embarrassed about speaking in public. So they kind of do this. Well, you know, they put their hand up to their mouth. And I'm like, that's really not helping the people understand what you're saying. In any event. Okay, so I hope you understand the point here. That he's dealing with tongues and he wants to make sure that people understand what is being said. All right. Now it's time to move ahead to look at Paul's third and final analogy to his teaching about tongues without interpretation. Verse 10. There are perhaps a great many kinds of tongues in the world, languages in the world. No kind is without meaning to the people who understand it. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian. In other words, if you go to France, and you know, the French really have a lot of pride in their culture and their language and everything else, and the French person speaks to you in French and you're like, no comprenez, you know. Well, they're going to look at you, oh, you're a barbarian. You can't even speak the language, that the, the French language, the greatest language in the world. You're a barbarian. So if you don't know the meaning of, Paul says, if I don't know the meaning of that particular language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian. By the way, you know, I'm here and I think that Greek is the best language. And so I will think that one speaking French will be a barbarian to me. It's interesting how that works, isn't it? Everybody, you know, we all think English is the best. And people in France think French is the best. People in China, you know. So everybody thinks that their language is the best. Let's be real. That's kind of the way human beings think. So if somebody doesn't speak it, they're kind of lesser. Oh, you're, you're an outsider. You're a barbarian to me. Verse 12. Since also you, see now he's finally turning around to them in verse 12. He says, since you're zealous, we'll see what that word means, of spiritual gift, the spirituals. Seek to abound for the spirituals that edify the church. So what is that saying? You know, if you're putting all your zeal as a congregation, oh, tongues are being spoken. This is exciting. This is marvelous. This is a manifestation of the Spirit. I don't know what he's saying. But, oh, wow. He No, he says the gifts that build everybody up. That's where the congregation to seek to abound in. In other words, you shouldn't say, oh, everybody's speaking tongues during their worship service. Don't don't be zealous for that. Be zealous for the gifts that build people up. All right. So he starts off by saying there are a great many kinds of languages in the world. There sure are. Today, there are about 7,000 spoken languages in the world. That's quite a few, if you think about it. That's way more, by the way, than the number of nations. 7,000 tongues. Yeah. Well, you might say, well, how can it be more than the nations? Well, think of China. There's a lot of different languages that are spoken in that country. Okay. So, by the way, French. French in France is different from French in the United States. right? Haitian Creole is different from France. French in France. Okay? So they're different. Some people would say that the people in the south speak a language that's foreign to the people in the north in the United States. And by the way, if we were separated long enough, they would turn into two languages. Very different from one another. But whether a language is spoken by 200 people, and some are, by the way, they're just one little tribe, or 200 million people, like in English and Chinese, the people who speak that language understand, get the meaning of what's said. However, the rest of us have no clue about what's being said. That's that picture, right? She's she's excited, she's explaining things, but it's in a foreign language to him. And he's like, I don't understand a word you're saying. So again trying to understand uninterpreted tongues in the assembly is just like trying to understand a person who is speaking in a language that you don't understand. Hapo Nino kako nei mungo nei alakuwa mungo Get it <laughs> Of course you don't But you know what it is? It's a Swahili. A person who knows Swahili would know, oh, yes, that's John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. See, now it's in English. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See the difference, though? You can be very excited that somebody knows how to speak Swahili. By the way, we have a person here who can speak a little. Right? Yeah. So, but, you can't understand it. And so we can understand it in English. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 11. If I, then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. I want you to notice that in verse 11, Paul shifts to the first person. In other words, he says, I... Why does he do that? Well, usually he does that, remember, when he wants to sort of take the pressure off the congregation and talk about himself first. By the way, that's a very effective way to give uh, criticism or chastisement to somebody. You first of all say, what if I did what they did? What if I did that? And they'd be thinking, oh, that, that'd be terrible. He says, I know, but that's what you're doing. That's basically how he's handling it. He says, if I don't know the meaning of the language, I will be the, to the one who speaks a barbarian. But the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. By the way, Paul spoke three languages at least. He spoke Hebrew, he didn't speak Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So he had the, like, the primo languages of the time. Everyone looked up those lists. Those were the civilized cultured languages. And yet he said, if I speak, if I don't know the meaning of another language, I'm a barbarian and they're a barbarian to me. So again, he uses I to divert their attention to him for a little bit in order to soften the blow that is about to come. Because Paul has intentionally chosen a word here that would have guaranteed a negative reaction from the Corinthian saints. And of course, we've seen already that word is barbarian. You know, when they heard that word, they, wait a minute, that's a shocking thing to say. Look at us, we are all cultured. We are Greek speakers. We are a colony of the Rome, the greatest empire in the world. What are you talking about, barbarian? Those are those people way up that we've never seen and hopefully never will you know those Germans and, the, and those Irish and those English and all those people—they're the barbarians. What? Uh, what do you talk? Don't even talk about barbarians here. Why are you saying that? It was a term of insult. If you wanted to insult somebody, you would call them a barbarian. Okay, just like in politics today, somebody would call them an animal. You're an animal. You know, it's kind of the same idea. Or, or you know, anyway, I'll, I got to keep off the politics. I'm trying to be an equal opportunity here, but. I'll I'll stop. Um, In that day, a barbarian was, again, one who was ignorant. Ignorant of culture. Ignorant of language. Living outside of the civilized Roman Empire. Greek word is barbaros. It meant a foreigner. A barbarian, of course. Rude and harsh. Ignorant. Uncouth. Uncivilized. You might be saying to yourself at this point, I think we have some barbarians in the United States. Rude and harsh, ignorant, uncouth, uncivilized. At the time, they didn't speak Greek and they didn't speak Latin. Um, Today, again, we have that situation. We have the situation where people don't speak the language that the culture speaks. That's a problem, by the way. I'll give you my sociological, political view on something today. Nations where some people speak one language and others speak another, it's really hard to keep them unified because they can't talk to each other. Same thing in the church. Same thing, if, again, if, if I came here and I started just speaking Greek, by the way, the Catholic church used to just speak Latin. Boy, that really built up the congregation. He, he turned his back, the priest would turn his back and start speaking in Latin. And only the wall had any clue if, if if the wall knew Latin. Right, so that's the key. The key is to understand a barbarian is somebody who doesn't speak the language, the cultured language. Alright, well so far so good. They can look at Paul talking about himself and be a barbarian, but the fact of the matter is that he's going about to say something to them that is really going to cut to the heart. This word, by the way, this word comes from the way of foreign language. At that time, anything other than Latin or Greek. Would have sounded to a cultured person. Bar bar bar. That's where it came from. Literally, it came from the sound that people made when they couldn't understand it. You know, we have some we have stuff like that in our culture. Plop 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 plop. Right? Blah blah blah. We have a blablerian right there. So anyway, that's what it was. It would have been the last thing that a cultured, in quotes, Corinthian would have wanted to have, be called last thing in the world. It's a huge insult. And I want you to notice that he's he's comparing this to the tongue speakers. Interesting. Why is that interesting? Because that would be a huge shock to most of the congregation in Corinth at the time. They thought that speaking in tongues meant you were a special advanced Christian. And Paul's going to come in and say, special advanced Christian? You're a barbarian if you do that in in the public worship service. That would have been hard to take. For the people who are really thinking tongues was the best, they behave like barbarians when they speak in tongues without an interpreter during the worship service. Okay? Okay, so the tongues have ceased, but the principle's the same. And we'll see that in a minute. Because tongues have ceased, but people still try to do it, you know? But if, if they do it, especially if the, if the whole congregation is doing it, and I've, I've been to con- church services, church services that they do that. Nobody can understand a thing. But they'd be insulted if, we, if I told them, you know, you're being like barbarians right now. Because they thought, you know, it's special. It was a special thing that happened, like after salvation, when you got holy enough, you were able to. And it was like, hey, he's speaking in tongues. Wow, hallelujah. I don't know what he's saying. But he, ugh. Barbarian. Just bring this verse. If you ever want to go to a Pentecostal assembly church, make sure you bring 1 Corinthians 14 with you. And point it out. All right. In any event, they behave like barbarians when they don't speak with an interpreter in tongues during the worship service. Verse 12. Since also you. Again, he's pointing it out to you now. He's saying, I've talked about barbarians and now I'm talking about you. You see it? Since you also, you, you are zealous of spirituals, seek to abound for the edification of the church to build everybody up. If you don't, if you're just speaking for yourself in an unknown language, you're barbarian in the worship service. Okay? Because tongues was a private gift. We're going to see this. All right? Primarily. All right. Now the word zealous here means eagerly desiring. I'm zealous for that. All right? Eagerly desiring. Or being passionately committed to something. A zealot. You know, a a true believer, but not in the right things most of the time. That's what it means. Eagerly desiring, being passionately committed to something. But your zeal, if you have it, can be directed to the wrong thing. You know, it's the same thing with faith. Right? Faith is just, we, we hear something, believe it. Faith is faith. But faith can be directed to the wrong direction. It can be directed to Muslim, you know, Islam. It can be directed to a party, a political party, uh, a lust that you have for riches. It can be, you can be zealous for anything, believe in anything. All right, so again, zealous, your zeal can be directed towards the wrong thing. I want you to think about the issue of abortion in the United States of America. I want you to think about the political activists on both sides. Okay, both sides. Well, they're both zealous for their cause, Right? They're poles apart, but they're both zealous. Now I'm going to tell you something. They can't both be right, but they're all zealous. You see it? You can direct your zeal, zeal in the wrong direction. Okay, that's out there. We have zealots in the church today. Okay, you can think of the cults, absolutely. But how about legalists who crusade against certain sins? They're out there telling people to commit certain sins, you're going to hell, God hates you. That's a zealot. It's not true, by the way. For God to so love the world. World of unbelievers. Other people are zealous for this or that. Pastor or writer. People that say, you've got to read this book. You're not really a Christian until you see what's in this book. And they're not talking about the Bible. They're talking about something somebody wrote a year ago. They're zealous for that rather than the word of God. Not only that, but they expect everybody to be the same as they are. Whatever they're zealous for, you've all got to be zealous for there's something wrong with you. Now, they may be zealous for something good, but it's not the whole picture. Okay, not the whole picture. It's fine if you think, you know what, the Lord has called me to such and such. You should be zealous for the calling, but you shouldn't turn around and tell everybody, you all have to do this now. That's a zealot. All right. So here, Paul wants them to redirect their zeal. See, so far it's been zeal towards uninterpreted tongues. He says, turn your zeal, your energy, your commitment away from that to the speaking gifts that edify the congregation. Or very simply, speech that helps people. Prophecy. Tongues with interpretation. Exhortation. These all build up people. Exhorting people. You know, building them up and then directing them. Applying the word of God. Teaching. Okay, these are all gifts that edify the congregation. Speech that helps people. So also you, he points, seek to abound for the edification of the church, or else you will be a barbarian yourself. Paul, Paul was not striving for popularity. I hope you see that. You know, he says, if I become your enemy by telling you the truth. Verse 13. Therefore, let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. It's the only way that, that you know, tongues when it was operating. The only way it ought to operate in the church back then was if there was an interpreter. Or if the person prays to be given given that ability. By the way, it's not something that the person would pray as they would teach. Oh Lord, give me the gift of interpretation. No, it's something that you have to recognize before that. And if you come into the the worship service and there's no interpreter present and you don't have the gift of interpretation, you should be silent. Why? Because it's not going to build anybody up unless they can understand it in their own language. Therefore let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I, here he goes again, if I pray in a tongue and he did, my spirit prays. He understood this. He saw it in personal experience. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And the only way to communicate people with people, to people is through the mind. We're going to see this, okay? There are promptings of the spirit the Spirit's building us up, prompting us to, to, yes, go in that direction. No, don't go in that direction, and so forth. Okay? But that's also in a sort of mysterious way. Paul's going to say, I speak mysteries. Sometimes we don't really, we can't, we don't really, at first, when we understand the Spirit working in us, we usually can't put it into words. You just, you know. You know. But if I was going to then turn that into a message, I better stop and think about it, how it applies to you, and use my mind so that I can communicate to you, and that would be understandable to you. You can take that information, and the Spirit can work with it for you. All right. So again, if I pray in a tongue, verse 14, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? Or what's what's the conclusion here? Now they understand that. How does that apply? He says, I will pray with my spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. They're supposed to be together on this. I will sing, singing. Back then they sung in tongues. But he says, I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Again, this has great application today. There There are so many people who want to take their private experience and then... Push it on people without ever stopping to think about using the mind. See? Now, he, look, get me wrong, the Lord doesn't want intellects who only, you know, only speak in advanced thought and all that, but He does want communication, and that's with language, and that's, that involves the brain or the mind, actually. So we see that people spoke in tongues back then before the gift ceased, people prayed in tongues back then before the gift ceased, but again, the principle. No one should have spoken tongues during the worship service. No one, unless an interpreter was present. Should not happen. Now, of course, the, you have a gift. You, you want a, the companion gift. Tongues have to have interpretation, have to have an interpreter. You may have been in a situation where there's all these tongue speakers and nobody has the gift of interpretation. And you can say, I, I pray that I or somebody else have the gift of that because otherwise... You can't even use the tongues gift in a public worship. Once again, here in verse 14, he switches from the third person, one who speaks in a tongue, to the first person. I, if I pray in a tongue. By the way, in this case, he is speaking from personal experience. He says he has spoken in tongues. He has prayed in a tongue. He has sung in a tongue as well. He knows that from personal experience because he, he's going to tell us in verse 18 he spoke in tongues more than anybody else. So what does that mean? It means at the time, it, Paul was not condemning the gift. A lot of people think, oh, he's totally negative about tongues. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. You know, we already saw it once where he said, you know, yes, desire tongues, but, but more than that, desire things that will build up the church. He spoke in tongues. How could he be condemning something that he did? Okay. What he was condemning, i am got to repeat this, was uninterpreted tongues in public worship. Okay. He had spoken in tongues more than anyone else. He knew that if he prayed with the tongue, it was a spiritual thing, but his mind wasn't there to help understand it. Same thing with prayer, same thing with singing. Okay. All right. When Paul prayed in the tongue, he knew that he prayed with the spirit, but his mind was not being used. Therefore, it was unproductive unproductive. It's not until there are times when when I'm preparing a message all of a sudden there'll be sort of this, the spirit will kind of link things together, like verses together. But if I just came up here and gave you those random verses, you'd be like, huh, how does that fit together? So then my mind has to kick in. My mind has to kick in and say, okay, what is the connection here? The Spirit has shown me there is one, but what is it? Because if, I don't, if I'm not able to explain, explain and express the connection and why those two go together, it's not going to be meaningful for you. So the Spirit and the mind. If he only prays in a tongue, he will be edified. You know, it will be built up, but no one else will benefit. And that's not supposed to happen in the worship service. If he the works, this works, by the way, praying only in a tongue. When he prayed in private. Doesn't work during the worship service. By the way, let's take a time out here for a minute. People want to say, well, what is the spirit? I have to tell you that it's a great question. And it's not easy to decipher in God's word because the fact is that the word is used in different ways. Okay, But here, okay, here he's talking about the, the spirit that we receive when we were born again. And that spirit, human spirit, has a direct line to the Holy Spirit. That's its design direct line to the holy spirit that's how you become that's how what it means to be spiritual by the way have the spirit dwelling in you and then your human spirit sort of communes communicates with the holy spirit and then you then move of course to the mind so that which is born of the spirit Jesus said in gospel of john chapter 3 is spirit it was born of the Spirit. In other words, it's of the same kind of thing as the Holy Spirit. Not God, certainly, but in the way in which it operates. It, it operates in connection, in tandem with the Holy Spirit. That's our human spirit. The Holy Spirit can move the human spirit with groanings too deep for words. You know, there are times when when just all of a sudden, I'll be, all of, I'll be studying something, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking about a person. I have to stop and say, wait a minute. If I, just, if I just have that experience, that's no good. But when I understand, oh, you mean that I take this and the, what he's saying to me, forgive, and I apply it to that person. Now I'm thinking, I'm using my mind. Okay. The Holy Spirit can also speak mysteries to the human spirit. We saw that. Paul said the same thing. He had lots of mysteries of the Spirit revealed to him, but the fact of the matter is, is that we mysteries just mean that there's something you don't understand yet in the Bible, and then, but then somehow you, you feel like you're illuminated about it. Wait a minute. But it'll remain a mystery unless you then turn the mind on, explain what it is that the Holy Spirit has revealed to you. Because other than that, those mysteries remain just that, a mystery. Until the mind kicks in and puts those spiritual thoughts into spiritual words. If I have a spiritual thought, I can't communicate it to you unless I then... Do- Put it together with words that are spiritual. So Paul says, when I pray in the spirit, I also pray with the mind. Therefore, spiritual thoughts become spiritual words. By the way, we've seen that already in the book of 1 Corinthians. Spiritual thoughts become spiritual words. And again, you, you can have a spiritual thought, and you can see that it's revealing something to you. Or that the spirit is moving you in a certain direction. Or a spirit is guiding you somehow to understand the connection between what I've been reading in the Bible, what I've been hearing through the preaching and my life. But if I don't turn that into words, it's not something I'll be able to do anything with. Same thing with you, especially with the gift, communication gift. All right. Spiritual words are the things that build up, that encourage, that console the rest of the congregation. So prayer to be profitable to you or anybody else, must involve both the human spirit and the human mind. What he's saying here is, is that uninterpreted tongues can be a spiritual thing for you. This was back then. Tongues have ceased. I've got to keep emphasizing that, even though I haven't proven it yet. We'll get to that because I need something later on in chapter 14 to show that. But he said that, that that's spiritual for you individually. But now even you right, have to translate that for yourself using the mind. Using the mind. There's a lot of times where, you must have had this experience, not a lot, but once in a while, where I'm sort of overwhelmed with things. He's kind of, he's kind of like, I want to say, hey, slow down. you know. And, and, and then what does that mean? Well, it's time to, and this is what I have to do. I have to go wherever I am, in the shower, in the bedroom, outside with the dog. I have to say, time out. I've got to write this down right now. Otherwise, I'll forget it. I'll miss it. And if I don't write it down, it won't be building me up, and it certainly won't be building you up. Okay. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter four, verse twenty-three. John four twenty-three. I want you to see how Jesus put it in the Gospel of John, talking to the woman by the well, who had five husbands. Wow, is right. Was it three? Anyways, it was a bunch. I think it was five. Anyway, that's who he's talking to. John chapter four, verse twenty-three. He said, but an hour is coming. You know what that hour is? The church age. An hour is coming and now is. And the apostles had had already been plugged into this. When the true worshipers, should we be the real thing when we get together and, and have a worship service together? Right? True worshipers, what does that mean? We'll worship the Father, notice how? In spirit and truth. With the spirit and the mind. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, that's the same thing. Same goes for singing. Paul says, I sing in the tongue with the spirit, my spirit, but that does nothing for the congregation unless he also sings with his mind. In a sense, he's bilingual. What does that mean? Well, it means he he sings in an unknown tongue. But then he sings the same song in a language they can understand. That makes sense, okay? We hear this once in a while. There are people that are Spanish sing singing people, and then they turn around, and then the next next chorus they speak it in English, so the rest of the people can understand it. Or you know something like this that you probably heard it before: Feliz Navidad, right? Feliz Navidad, Feliz Navidad, Prospero Ano a Felicidad, right? Well, if you just looked at that and you never heard the song in English, you might be—that's great, but that's a language I don't understand. What is it? Is it French? Is it, you know, is it Latin? Of course, we we know that it's Spanish. However, when he then turns and sings, "I want to wish you a Merry Christmas," ah, I now know what Feliz Navidad means. You see, it—it's the same kind of thing. Only difference is that the songs were unknown even to the person. That's why you needed a separate interpreter in order to explain it in their language. Again, tongues was a legitimate spiritual gift for the Corinthian church at that time. But don't get the wrong idea. It was not like a frenzied, ecstatic speech, you know? They're foaming at the mouth. It was under the control of the speaker. Don't miss that. Otherwise, how would he be silent without an interpreter if it was something, "I'm, I'm feeling it now, right? It wasn't that. It was under the control of the speaker. The speaker could decide whether or not to speak in what he's, what he's experiencing. It's the same thing, by the way, with any of us. You know? If we're, if we're having this experience, and we can't, we're just not able to, to to talk about it, we should keep silent. And that's the same thing with tongues. The gift was designed to work hand in hand with the gift of interpretation. Tongues plus interpretation at that time equaled prophecy. Ah, now I see what the Spirit has revealed to you. Why? Because it's in my language. Then it becomes prophecy, or revelation, or knowledge, or teaching. All of that back then. Now what happens is, the apostles, particularly Paul, and Peter, and John, those are the main ones, Jude, they have that same thing going on. It wasn't in interpreted tongues. But they were, they were hearing things, revealing, having things revealed to them by the Spirit. And then they turned around and they wrote them down. That's why we don't need these gifts anymore. Because it's all written down for us now. Okay, so, but why is that important? Because that's how people are built up. So you might ask the question as we close today, how does this apply to us? If the gift of tongues has ceased, well, what's the big deal? We're wasting our time talking about it. It's not around anymore. And it has. Okay, we'll stay tuned for that. How does this passage on tongues apply to us today? Well, the first thing is, here in in 2020, we still have a human spirit and a human mind. We don't have tongues, but we have a human spirit and a human mind. What did Paul tell them about tongues? He said, we ought to pray and sing with the human spirit and the human mind also. That principle doesn't change. The the medium in which people would do it has. There's no more tongues. Again, we have the we have the Bible. We have the writings of Paul. We don't we don't need that gift anymore. By the way, when it was operating, it, it caused a lot of trouble because people tried to say it's special, I'm better than you and all that. It had a very limited function relative to prophecy. But even as we've seen already, prophecy was done away with by the by the writings of Paul when he had revealed the mysteries, same thing with knowledge and, and revelation and so forth. But this still remains We ought to pray, we ought to sing with the human spirit and the human mind also. Okay. That doesn't always happen, by the way. All right. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 16. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 16. Of course, we've been here. But now we're going to look at it in view of what Paul's teaching in chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, what does that mean? These are the things that the mind works with are the things that are seen, the things that are heard, the things that enter into your heart. Okay, the mind does that. But it says here, there are things... No eye has seen. Your ears haven't heard. They haven't entered your heart. And yet God has prepared these things for those who love Him. Illustration of that. The Bible says, promises, that He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then you, you understand the Spirit is pointing out to you. Or a promise, right? A promise that after you you'll suffer for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And yet the day comes when you're suffering mightily and then you have to rely on that promise and that's what you're doing. It's sort of silent, but you're relying on something and then you're living your life in view of that and then all of a sudden, eye has seen again. Ear is heard because He's come through and shown you what He's been doing. Verse 10. For to us, I love this, God revealed them through the Spirit. Through how? Through the Spirit. In other words, the first thing that happened was that these things, which I has not seen and so forth, God's revealed them to us. How? Through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Can you imagine? You have the Holy Spirit indwelling your heart, and He searches all things, even the depths of God. And those things cannot be put into words. When Paul went up to the third heaven, he saw things that were inexpressible. And yet the same thing can happen for us. Why? Because we have the Spirit indwelling our heart. God reveals the mysteries through the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now he turns to us and he says, who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, the Holy Spirit, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Notice verse 13. These things we also speak. They've been revealed by the spirit, and then we speak them. Not with words taught by human wisdom. And in other words, they're not manufacturing these things, but those taught by the spirit. Now, here we go. Combining spiritual thoughts, that's the first thing, it's part of it with spiritual words that can then be used to build everybody up. Natural man doesn't accept these things of the Spirit of God. They're a foolishness to him. There are a lot of things that we preach, that we live by. What I just said, you know, um, you, you, you say, you know what? I'm going to focus on his righteousness, not what I'm to eat, what, not what I'm to wear. And the person that's the natural mind says, you're out of your mind. You know, why? Because I don't see what you're talking about. I don't understand what it means to have faith in these things. That's the natural man. Doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're a foolishness to him. And he can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual has the Holy Spirit indwelling in their heart. Appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. Notice verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? This is the mind now. We have the mind of Christ. I hope you can see here we have the Spirit and the mind together once again. our prayers, therefore, are to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. What am I to pray for? Things are brought onto our hearts and so forth, inspired by the Holy Spirit yet they should also be directed by the mind or the thinking of Christ. They go together. The Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and Christ's mind. Both. The mind of Christ is revealed in the Bible. It's not not mysterious anymore. It's in the Bible... It's climaxed by the mysteries that Paul reveals in his letters. I mean, could we ever, ever, ever understand? we could have an experience in the heart from the spirit of the idea that, wow, you know what? We're the fullness. We're some fullness. I don't know what it is. But then Paul reveals that, yes, the church is the body, the fullness of Christ in this world. What was what was unknown becomes known. What was a mystery in the past has become revealed now to the church. That's why the mind of Christ is revealed in the Bible. That means whenever we have an experience, whenever we have an inclination, or even, even something that we're being nudged about by the Spirit, okay, we ought to then go to the Word of God, find it there, and now we can express it. It's directed by the Word of God. Our prayers should never involve meaningless repetition. You know, Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, come to us, come to us, come to us. Descend, Spirit. Descend, descend. You know, you have these people that pray like that. Never be like that. It shouldn't be a meaningless repetition. It also should not be a performance. A lot of people think prayer is a performance. Hey, I'm a great prayer. You hold on while I pray for 10 minutes in the worship service. Yeah, an experience where people are whipped up into a frenzy of emotion. You ever have seen that prayer or heard prayers like that? It's a performance. They want all the attention on them. And he's trying to whip people up in a frenzy of emotion. If they're in a frenzy of emotion, they don't, they don't care that what he says has nothing to do with the Bible because they're all worked up. And that goes on all the time in the church. Listen, Jesus said, go to your private room and just tell them what you need. That's prayer. Praise him. By the way, in understandable words, thank him. Pray for others and ask for what you need. That's prayer. The mind is involved. Finally, the songs, right? We've seen today that they prayed in tongues, they sang in tongues. The principle was both the spirit and the mind. The mind of Christ is in the Bible. So put that together. Okay, we're supposed to sing and we can be inspired to sing, but then the lyrics should be of the mind of Christ, the spirit and the mind together. What's the mind of Christ? The Bible. What does that mean? Song lyrics should come from the Bible. In, in the public worship service. If you're by yourself and you're singing to the Lord, great. You know? I mean, even then, it should, it should be from the Word of God. You ought to be able to think your own mind and say, you know, I, I, I'm experiencing something. It's gratitude in my heart. I want to sing to the Lord. Great. Go to a psalm of thanksgiving and sing it. Okay. That's how it should work. Not only that, but the music part, you have the lyrics and the music, it should match the meaning of the song. A lot of people don't get that. It should match the meaning of the song. It should go together. It should enhance your understanding of what's being said, of sung at that point. By the way, in singing, there's also no room for meaningless repetition. You know, there are worship songs today that are just saying the same thing again and again. Oh God, I praise you. Oh God, I praise you. Oh God. I mean, I'm not making fun of praising of God, but I am pointing out that repetition is not where it's at. Supposed to be building each other up. In other words, the worship song should not be putting people into a trance, which happens a lot today. For example, a song about the resurrection of Christ should not sound like a funeral dirge. Right? That makes sense? I'm talking about the music, right? By the way, a song about the death of Christ should not be set to the tune of this old man, he said, bye. Jesus is on the cross right now. The music does not match the meaning, right? Then he shouldn't do that. The music has to match the meaning. But finally, the worship song should not be like the instruments that he talked about. Should not be harsh. Should not be loud. Should not have distracting sounds so people can't even hear the meaning of the words. Should not be any of that. Finally, songs should not be chosen because their tune is attractive. That may be okay in, in, in the pop music. It's not okay in the church. You have to look at the theology they express. What is this song saying? That's what matters. The lyrics. The lyrics. You know? pass, me, pass me not, O oh gentle Savior. And it's a beautiful song. The problem is, is that he's already promised he's not going to pass you by. You have eternal security. So when you're singing that, now God knows that. He might be saying, man, how come he doesn't just stick to my word? The problem really comes when it's in a public setting, and then everybody starts thinking, oh, yes, I, I may be passed by by the Lord, right? And they get into emotional frenzy and all of that. No, the lyrics should match what the Bible has to say, not because of the tune. I really like the tune, you know. <clears throat> Amazing Grace, they say. I'm not, I've researched this, can't come to an offensive conclusion on it, but the music came from a bar tune. Apparently. Right? Because tune, you can, here again, you can, ma- you can match tunes to any lyrics if you want. Right? The key is that the, the music matches the meaning and the meaning is what matters. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for pointing out to us that you have given us the human spirit and the Holy Spirit in dwelling and you've given us a human mind and you've given us the mind of Christ and they had to work together. Help us never to forget that, especially when we're in the worship service, at the preaching, the praying, the singing, the giving. All of that should have a combination of the spirit and the mind. And finally today, Father, we do ask that you would allow us to preach the gospel in this prayer. For any of you out there who have not yet believed in Christ, there is good news. The bad news is all of us were born sinners. The good news is God so loved us that he gave his only son. God's son became human while remaining God. And he went to the cross, the most brutal, horrible way in which a government ever put somebody to death. He did that for us. He died for our sins. He died for your sins. He was buried. But that wasn't the end of the story because on the 3rd day God raised Jesus from the dead. Think about it. God raised Jesus from the dead. Dying a horrible death. The body disfigured. The soldiers had to prove that he was dead and give that proof to their, to their officers. And then they put him in a tomb. And they thought that would be it. Yet you knew that you would raise him from the dead. And that resurrection proves he is who he says he is. God in the flesh. Whoever believes in the, in the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ will never perish. Has eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we again want to thank you for the gospel, for the word, for the spirit. and we, Father, we please have the spirit point us in the right direction, and then help our minds to put that into words for ourselves and others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Just remember one more time that a memorial service for Tom Merchberger will be held this Saturday, January 25th at 2 p.m. here at Lighthouse Bible Church. I encourage all of you to attend. If you'd like to give a gesture, remember the family says don't give flowers, make a donation to the Michael J. Fox Parkinson's Foundation. Okay. We are meeting again this Thursday at January 23rd at 7 p.m. for our informal Bible study. I want to mention our giving from time to time. I want to mention our giving policy. Do that briefly today. We don't pass the basket around. We don't do that. Okay? We don't have pledges. We don't have tithing. Because all of that puts pressure on people to do it out of obligation. To do it that they won't be shamed in front of other people. That's not motivation that God, that God wants. He wants you to be gracious as He's been gracious to you. So that with a, with a heart of gratitude, thanksgiving, you give. You give. You freely give. That's how giving is supposed to work. So while we don't pass out pass along a bucket, a basket, I always say bucket. I don't think anybody has ever passed a bucket around. It's a basket or whatever. We do have box in the back, Jack is standing right in front of it, by it. So privately, you know, no pressure. I'm not gonna be sitting here and watching the box until everybody leaves, writing down names, you know. I'm not gonna do that. You can do it anytime. You can do it when you come in, when you leave. When you break in, no, whatever. Just kidding. Um, you can also send us by mail, the U.S. Mail Lighthouse Bible Church. Or probably easiest of all is the website. So you know, so guide you to that. Again, as, the, as God leads you according to how he's graced you out with, with, with genuine gratitude for, to, to God, that's how you give. All right. By the way, prayer. We do have a public prayer service every Thursday at the end of our Bible study and we we want your 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 intercessions the things that you're praying for that you want the group as a whole to be praying. You can do that on the web too or you can also you can write it down there's a box in in the foyer in the back foyer where you can give us our your prayer request as well. If you have any questions about the gospel about today's message or anything else about the Bible and about being a Christian. I don't know what the lottery tickets numbers are going to be tonight, but I invite you to speak to me right after service. I'll be here for a little bit in the front. All right, Father, we thank you for all your gifts. We thank you for all that you've done in our lives. We thank you for all you will do. We praise you for who you are. And we know that we can be anticipating, eagerly anticipating you explaining our our prayers, answering them according to your will. We praise you and thank you no matter what. Pray this by the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. Enjoy this beautiful day.